Welcome to the Scottish Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Budd, and I've missed a week because last week I was absolutely full of some kind of cold flu virus. And I did at one point in my fevered state think, oh, I could still record something, but you wouldn't have understood a word I said, uh, not just because my nose was stuffed up, but also because I was just feverish and havering. So this week... The havers that I have for you are non-feverish <laughs> and they relate to history, a wee bit of history for you, but also some stories from folklore. And I hope you enjoy it. The focus of the last episode was on belting and the changing of the year, the turning of this circle of the year. And so this week I thought I would bring you some stories about different kinds of changes. And this is the first story. It's a folk story I learned a long time ago and it is one of my favourites because the character in it comes up so often and this is her origin story. And I hope you enjoy it. Five hundred years ago, between Glendura and Glenahulish, there lived a dairy maid and she had such a talent for working with cattle. It was as if she could talk to them. And not just cattle either, birds, hares, horses, foxes, deer, all the creatures of the forest and the wilds seemed to understand her when she spoke. And some said that she got this gift by making a promise to the fairies. I don't know if that's true. But if it is, then I can tell you that one day the fairies came to make good on that promise. And she was seen running across the field and as she ran her legs became those of a deer and her body twisted and broke and turned into something monstrous and her skull split and from those splits horns sprouted and curled through her hair from that day she was woman no more now she could still talk to the beasts because she was part beast herself family and friends could barely recognise her by looking but they knew who she was and they leave her milk and oats by the marker stone but when they saw her, when they caught glimpses of her they never spoke well, they feared her the glass dig and there are many stories about her and this this is the first I suppose this next story has been on my mind because of, uh, you know, recent high-profile events. <laughs> and, yeah, I know, see what you think. Ruri's father had given him land with lots of rules and advice about caring for it. I'll never remember all that, said Ruri. Well, if you remember anything, it should be these two things, said his father. One... There's a stone in the pasture where we leave milk for the glass dig. In exchange, she returns all the cattle who wander. And two, never ever cut peat from the hill where the hawthorn grows, for that belongs to the fairies. Well, Rudy didn't want to give his milk away to the glass dig, and so his cattle wandered off. And he decided he was going to cut peat wherever he liked. And so he went to the place where the hawthorn grew. And the second he cut into the peat, a fairy woman appeared. You can't cut peats here, she said. 
I can do what I like, said Rudy. This land is all mine. It's also all ours, said the woman. Come and I'll show you, she said. And the land beneath the hawthorn opened up, revealing a staircase of tree roots woven through stones. And Fairy Woman went down, and Rudy followed her, down, 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 into the belly of the earth, which closed behind them. And no one ever saw him again, except for once, one fair May day, his likeness was seen walking, eyes cold as water, seeing nothing and no one, neither smiling nor grimacing, wearing a crown of peat and clutching a scepter of hawthorn, muttering as he went, pour the milk in the stone, cut no peat from the hawthorn, pour the milk in the stone, cut no peat from the hawthorn, pour the milk in the stone, cut no peat from the hawthorn. Historically, one of the most popular sets of myths are the Celtic Arthurian legends. And of all the stories in the Arthurian legends, probably the most famous, and not just because of Monty Python, is the story of the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail, for those who don't know, is something that is supposedly have been brought to earth by the neutral angels. So not the ones that support God and not the ones that support the devil, but the ones who, well, couldn't care less, I suppose. And this grail is like a horn of plenty. I mean, it can give you anything you want, as much food, you know, inspiration, anything. But the only people who can possess it are those who have lived life on their own terms. They followed their own path. They've made their own way. They've made their own adventure. So if you're right now, if you're struggling to live life on your own terms, well, you know, there's a reason for that. It's the Holy Grail. It's very hard. It's not supposed to be easy. Now, we have a few stories in Scottish folklore that touch upon this idea of the Holy Grail and finding your own way and following your own path, no matter what. And I'm going to tell you two of those stories. This is the first one. There was once a young girl, and she had to take her father's grain to market, and on the way to market she had to pass a fairy knoll. Now, you know the rules about interacting with the fairies. Don't take any gifts, don't make any promises, don't take any food. Like I say, you know the rules. Well, she got to the fairy knoll, and she saw a big band of fairies all hanging out, having a great time, and they saw her, and one of them grabbed her and pulled her down, down, down into the deep dark earth until she was in their world, in the underworld. And this happened to be the prince of all the fairies. And he said to her that he wanted her to make bread every day from the big chest of meal that sat beside her. And he said that once she had baked enough bread to empty this meal chest, well then she could go home. Not only that, but he would pay her a wage. So she sat and she baked and she baked and she baked. But it didn't seem to matter how much meal she took from that chest. It never emptied. And she soon realised that it didn't matter how much baking she did. This meal chest was enchanted and there was no way she was ever going to empty it. Well, she sat down and she cried. Now, 
In the fairy world, there was an old woman. She too had been abducted when she was a young girl, and she saw the wee lassie. She remembered how she felt when she had just been brought there. And so she sidled up to her and she said, I know how you can fix this. Now every day, you're using up every, every scrap you possibly can. But instead of doing that, if you just leave a wee sprinkling in the meal chest, you'll find that it soon empties. Well, that didn't really make any sense to the lassie, but she thought she would try anything really just to get out. So she did. And it worked. The meal chest was empty. She ran and told the prince of the fairies, but he didn't believe her. So he went and had a look. And sure enough, it was empty. Well, he had to stay true to his word, despite how he felt about it. He gave her a wade, and he sent her home. And as she left, he shouted, A blessing upon thee, and a curse on whoever taught you. Finn McCool and his warrior band had discovered that the Kilich of the Sea had this amazing cup, this chalice, and whatever you wanted from this chalice would come out of it. Food, weapons, inspiration, oh, you name it, this cup could do it. And so they decided to steal it. And that's what they did. They snuck down beneath the waves and they pulled it out of the sea and they ran back to the lodges where they were and then they bolted the door. And the Kelly of the Sea saw that it was missing. She pulled herself slowly out of the sea and the foam of the sea on the top formed the lace of her skirts as she rose out of the ocean. Now she is giant. She's humongous. And she's also very old. So when she stepped onto the land, she had to grab onto a huge, great big beech tree. She pulled it out of the ground and the roots came snapping and tearing from the earth. And she used this as a walking stick. She hobbled slowly, thump, 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 towards Finn McCool's warrior band lodges. And she knocked very politely on the door of one. Return my chalice, she said. Tis not yours. At this, she heard scuffling and running inside the lodge. And another bolt was added to the door. That wasn't very polite, she thought. And she took her walking stick, this huge beech tree, and she used it as a club and thumped the door, smashed it right in. And then she reached in and she just took the chalice back. And then thump, thump, thump. She went back to the sea, left the beech tree, sunk back beneath the waves, put the chalice right back where it was. If something is worth taking, it's worth asking for. This next story is a true story from history about a man, Walter Milne, who lived during the Reformation and he stuck to his guns and his beliefs regardless of the consequences, which were quite severe. In 
1526, Walter Milne became the vicar of Linen near Montrose, and he remained there for about 20 years. Walter was really interested in all the different ideas around the Bible and religion, and he was happy to debate them, especially when a whole load of books got smuggled in from the continent, from Europe and Antwerp and Hamburg, and all into Dundee. And all these learned men and women and religious people were discussing these ideas in private. Because this was during the Reformation. It was a very dangerous time to be talking about these things out loud. And in 1546, just when these conversations were happening, Cardinal Beaton was wandering through Angus, looking, searching out for religious mavericks to arrest and make an example of. And his name, Walter Milnes, was passed to Cardinal Beaton. Beaton ordered Milnes' arrest, as well as his neighbour, John Pertree. But before the soldiers arrived, both John and Walter fled. They escaped. Walter hid in the forests of Galloway and preached there. And then he found a few different odd jobs, had to keep moving. And one of those jobs was as a skipper on a trading vessel. He made it to Germany, as far as Germany. And he didn't return to Scotland until 1556, when he thought that people were going to be a little bit more flexible about their ideas. However, he was wrong, and he was arrested again. And he was taken to St Andrew's Castle, the dungeon. And he was told that if he didn't recant all his ideas wacky debates, then he would be killed. In 1558 he was tried, he was found guilty and then given to the provost of St Andrews to have the sentence of burning alive confirmed. But the provost was absolutely against the idea and refused to do it. Nonetheless, Walter Milne was dragged down into the town, taken to the stake The St Andrews townsfolk were absolutely livid at the idea. They didn't agree with it. So they closed all their doors. They shut themselves in. They refused to give them the tar for burning him with or the cord to bind him. Nonetheless, Walter Milne sadly was burnt at the stake in St Andrews. And afterwards, the townspeople kept building a cairn, a wee heap of stones on the spot. The soldiers would kick the stones over townspeople would keep building back up. Finally, much, 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 much later, a monument was erected and his name was inscribed beside the other two Reformation martyrs, Patrick Hamilton, Henry Forrest, George Wishart. But 82-year-old Walter Milne was the very last martyr of the Scottish Reformation. Yesterday I was in Glenesk Museum looking at a map of over 70 villages that used to exist along the river in the early 1800s, long before deer, sheep or the draw of the big cities saw villages empty of their people. You won't find any of the names of these places on modern maps, although if you look across the land you'll see some of the ruins of the actual villages still there. It gives you a wee clue as to how full and thriving the area was at one time. If you're local to the area, go visit, look out across the land and just imagine one family living on it per field and you get a sense of how populated this area once was. 
And there are records of letters sent to authorities complaining of landlords pushing people off their land in this area in the 19th century. And there are letters from the landlords denying the accusations. However, the villages mentioned in these letters were eventually replaced with deer to be hunted for sport by the wealthy. So, you decide. There is another village that I would like to tell you about. Following the Jacobite uprising of 1745, the military decided that it needed a very accurate survey done of Scotland and her populace, and the result was General Roy's survey of Scotland, which was carried out between 1747 and 1754. Now, this survey is interesting because it's kind of one of the earliest census, really. And on this map and survey that was done, a village appears in Argyll, just east of Loch Tarbot, the entrance to Loch Tarbot. And this village is called Beldarach. Now, its name changes over the years in all different kind of senses. Sometimes it's known as Muldarach, and sometimes it's Mildarach, and sometimes it's Baal, and sometimes it's Bell, and... But, of all the names that it's called, there were definitely people living there. And in one of the census of 1841, five households are listed, and they've got all sorts of different ages. One of the things that is noted is that if you were over 30 years old, any of the people over 30 years old just gave their ages in tens. <laughs> now, some of the historians have said it's because they didn't know how old they were beyond 30. I don't believe that. And some of the occupations were fisherman, farmer, but that doesn't mean that it was a mutually exclusive occupation. You could be both. And there's also smiths, all kinds of things in this wee village. And what's interesting about this wee village that now no longer appears on the maps is the culture that it had. And specifically in the written record, it says that the people of Baldarach spoke Gaelic mainly, but it was of a different accent or a different type from the, seemingly the rest of the west of Scotland. So that's quite interesting, although it doesn't specify what it was. And then another thing is that seemingly quite a few different records and quite a diff few different myths about this little village were that the people came in from outside somewhere and they dressed differently. Specifically, the women wore red cloaks. And there is a record of one of these red cloaks being kept in a museum. And the label for it, it says, by the 1800s, these red cloaks were entirely factory made and in the 1860s were fashionable go-to market wear for Argyle women. It seems that the first red cloaks were brought to Tarbot by the incomers before the fashion had arrived there and made a considerable impression. By incomers, this label is inferring the people of Beldara, whoever they were and whoever, whatever they came from. Something else about the people of Beldara is that they disappeared around about 1840. Now, there are local myths about 
than being either wiped out or moved out by a plague, by cholera. And there is another myth about them being moved by being cleared in 1839. But there is nothing conclusive. So next time you see a red cloak, remember the people, the mystery people of Baldarach. I'm quite interested in the history of Scottish clans and every now and then somebody mentions to me their family name or their family clan or their the clan that they have Scottish ancestry attached to and I go straight to Georgia Todd's two volumes of the history of Scottish clans and I go and have a wee look <laughs> and if I can find anything about the family name then I tend to share it. But there's some clans that there's loads of things written about, like the McPhersons, there's tons of things written about them, and Clan Chatton as well. And then there are other clans that there's not so much written about, or they're just lumped in as sets uh, of a different clan. And there's one clan called McKellar that's quite an interesting one, because they were involved in this elaborate murder plot of a guy called Cawdor in the 16th century. And this, it connected up all these different clans throughout of Scotland. And at one point, the accused even went to the extent of, of saying that he was under the spell of, of witches so they could kind of get out of it. Anyway, it didn't work. And he had to give his lands over to the Campbells. And I think that's possibly why uh, McKellar is lumped in with the Campbells quite often as a set. Now McKellar actually means son of Hilary and not son of Cellarer as some historians say. And Hilary doesn't sound like a very Scottish name. However, it is Celtic in, uh, in a root sense. And there was actually a Saint Hilarius who was born about 410 AD, 5th century, and he became the Archbishop of Arles in France. And Hilarius, Hilarius Hilary, died in May in 449 AD, and he was buried in Arles. And his name has been used in a lot of the ancient provinces in France, or then Gaul. And his name also seems to have come over here. It came over to the Gaelic-speaking people of Ireland, but also the Gaelic-speaking people of Scotland. And so there you are. If you are a McKellar, you are related, connected, to Saint Hilarius of the 5th century. And now for the part of the podcast where I share with you a Fimacool story. Now, the last time I told you about how Finn had discovered the fisherman was the killer of his father, Cool, And I told you about how Finn had discovered that by tasting the salmon of knowledge. And that after he had killed his father's killer, he went off to form a warrior band because he knew then what he had to do. He saw his whole future laid out for him and the past as well. And off he went to find his warrior band. This part of Finn McCool's adventure is a little bit vague, so you'll forgive me if this story is a little short this week. Finn McCool went off in search of his warrior band, 
and they were a very specific group of men that he was trying to find. This group were ancient warriors, and they had been waiting for the son of Kul. They had had a prophecy given to them that the son of Kul was going to come and lead them to great victory in battle. And so they were been waiting for a long time. And because of this, if they were all to see Finn at once, all in one go, if they were all seeing him, then their minds would be blown and they would just collapse and they wouldn't be worth a, a jot for fighting. And Finn knew this because he had tasted the salmon of knowledge. And so he approached each of the men one by one and talked to them and said, I am son of Kul and I have come to lead you in battle. I have come to lead you to victory. Now he found his warriors all collected in a big sea cave by the seashore and they were all very unkempt. They hadn't shaved or cut their hair in oh, decades. So after Finn had delivered his message, he had told them he had come to lead them into great victory, great battles. He had them all shave their beards and cut their hair until they were nice and clean and well-kempt and looked at least like they might be presentable. <laughs> and then the story goes that they went off to seek adventure. Now, the first few adventures that they seek were hunting venison, hunting game, hunting deer. And a lot of the warriors were quite rusty. They hadn't used their spears or their swords or their arrows for quite some time. So the stories that follow are very much about the warriors retraining and getting their skills back, getting their strength back, and getting their taste for the hunt and for battle back. And from then on, we look at each of the individual heroes, and I can't wait to tell you their stories. Special thanks to Douglas, Marianne, Ken and the Sustainable Arts Foundation for all your support and also to our anonymous donors of new objects to the Travelling Folk Museum. That's just, it's fantastic and thank you so much for all your support and all your enthusiasm and encouragement for the work that I'm doing. It's hugely appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Scottish Folk Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you did, tell your friends, share it, write me a review, come and find me on Instagram. I am at Eileen Budd. If you would like to support the work that I'm doing with the Travelling Folk Museum, you could buy me a coffee. And the link to that is in my Instagram profile. Until next week, Herr Brian. <laughs>